Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about speculative design and higher education. Today on the show, I am joined by the designer, artist, and educator Tobias Revel. Tobias is currently the program director of graphic design at the London College of Communication, a founding director of the design research consultancy Strange Telemetry, and is working on a PhD in design at Goldsmiths. I don't really know how to summarize this conversation other than to say that it was really, really fun and really, really wide ranging. Tobias's career has spanned graphic design, speculative design, design education, writing and research and administration. And we talk about all of this in this conversation. We talk about the evolution of his own practice and working between art and design. We talk about how he started teaching and why he sees administration as a type of creative practice and the role of design education. We talk about terms like speculative design or critical design and what they mean and how we can think about them. And we talk about some of his current research around renders, around magic, around mysticism. I've been a fan of Tobias's work for a long time and could have talked to him easily for another hour. There's so much in this one that I, that I think is just really, really interesting. If you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content, like a monthly members-only newsletter, early episodes, transcripts of every episode, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to continue to support this show. So if you like scratching the surface, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thanks for listening. And here is me with Tobias Revel. This is either going to be a really funny question or, or a really boring question. I'm not totally sure. But on your website, you describe yourself, um, it, it says Tobias Revel is an artist and designer, comma, sort of. <laughs> and I want you to tell me about that sort of. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Um, I actually have a lot of different bios across different platforms. I, I um, Obviously, as any sort of creative graduate, you go through that stage of going back and forth between am I an artist, am I a designer, am I a consultant, am I a thinker, am I a strategist, you know, and you sort of have all these words that you go through and I could probably dig out, you know, um, optimistic business cards I've made throughout the years that have different titles on. And I just sort of settled on sort of, because also the difference to me and the way I think about those things is so meaningless and negligible that I don't really mind. And often, for instance, when I talk to students and they say, I can't figure out whether I'm an artist or a designer, I just sort of say, well, it depends what fund you're applying for. You know, if you're mm. applying to the arts council, you're an artist. If you're applying to the design council, you're a designer. Like it's, you know, it's still money at the end of the day. So sort of is partly that. And it's also an acknowledgement that I'm not that good. <laughs> like it's like, I'm a, I, the other thing I sometimes say is I'm a B plus designer. I've heard you say that before. I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> so, I mean, there are a lot of incredibly talented people I, I know and work with and, and spend lots of time with. And just in that context, I sort of look at myself with a lot of self-deprecation because <laughs> I'm just thinking I'm never, you know, I just whatever the, the attention to detail and nuance and rigor that really excellent designers who are at the top, who I think are at the top of their craft have or excellent artists as well. I just don't have in me. I'm just too short, sort of short-sighted and impatient that I just don't have that kind of dedication to being a really good designer. 
Yeah, I yeah, I, we need to talk about that more. But so it's interesting. So the sort of means both like you're sort of an artist and you're sort of a designer, but also means you're kind of just like sort of okay at both of those things. Yeah, yeah, it's completely forgivable. If you want something done quickly and turned around, I'm probably good at it. But if you want it to be of high quality, <laughs> go to someone else. <laughs> I love that. I love the, just setting up the high bar right at the beginning. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is if you have the lowest opinion of yourself in the room, it's very hard to lose confidence. That's true. That's, that is a good point. And I'm interested in this intersection of art and design that you're talking about though, because my students say the same thing. I work with graduate students all the time who uh, are working on thesis or capstone projects um, often in sort of critical and speculative spaces, which um, I think is kind of similar to a lot of your work. I've shown your work in, in class before, actually. Um, and, and I always have students who, and, and this is a communication design program, and they're always like, is this design? I'm worried that I'm just making art at this point. Mm -hmm. And I always want to tell them it doesn't matter. Um, you know, however you kind of classify it, it like, I don't care. I don't care kind of what you want to call it, as long as you're kind of responding to these things that you're thinking about, and you're making something out of it. You know, that's all I care about. How do you do you both with your students, because you mentioned that you talk about, you know, it just depends on what what grant or what fund, um, but then also in your own, do you kind of feel do, do you identify more with one or the other kind of depending on the circumstances or with your students? How do you kind of um, how do you kind of help them understand that that difference just doesn't matter? Well, I, I think there is actually more to that sort of rather glib description <laughs> I gave at the beginning, which is that there, there, I think to me, the difference is in the methodology and the process mm. and who it's for. I've worked with a lot of people with, you know, fine art backgrounds, for example, or, or in fact, my regular collaborator, Wesley Goatley, comes from a sound art background. Mm. And the way that they think through a project is very different to the way a designer thinks through a project. You know, as a designer, it is baked into my code to always think about the audience. It's always about how does how does this decision impact the way it will be received once the project is on exhibition or out in the world or whatever it is. Whereas I think from certainly the artists I've worked with who are maybe coming with artistic training, it's much more about the reflexivity for themselves. What are they getting out of it? How do they feel about what's going on? Um, I've worked with a with a formalist uh, painter before called Charlie Peters, who who is very much just you know spurned by intuition. She's not really at all thinking about the finished product or the audience or the or the outcome or things like that. So for me, I think the intention and the method of production is very much where it is. And I think obviously, very often, um, people get hung up on the context in which it goes into. So if it's in right. a gallery, it must be art. Right. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's about whether you're trying to do something that is communicating you know is it a communication project in which case right. you're th you will then by necessity of it being a communication project have to think about who is the audience what knowledge do they come with to this project what are their expectations how do i engage them in these new ideas how do i walk them through the story and um, it's one of the reasons i use film a lot as well because it gives you the opportunity to sort of structure an idea in a, in a narrative format um in which case that's very much designed to me and that's a design method and, and that is as i said it's sort of almost subconscious now I approach all projects in that perspective and, and it leads to really interesting collaboration with people who aren't coming from that perspective and, and maybe thinking about decisions we're making in a project in a really really different way I think that's actually a really um kind of nice way to think about it uh let's let's actually kind of use that to I'm, I'm kind of curious about the, this evolution of your own work actually um and and this kind of 
bridging both sides of this kind of art and design context and kind of living in kind of both of them and neither of them perhaps yeah. at the same time. I definitely um, neither of them. Not yeah. very seriously. <laughs> um, so you, you originally studied, uh, you have a BA in something that's called interactive and moving image. Is that that's right? right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I did, I did do, I did do Jarrett. I did do one year of graphic design. <laughs> okay. Tell and me about I, that. Uh, <laughs> can't, I've erased it from my memory. <laughs> so what, uh, what is, what's interactive and moving image? What, what type of uh, program is that? Like, what do you, uh, let me, let me ask this a, a better way. Sure. What, w- what type of classes are you taking in a curriculum like that? And then what were you thinking you wanted to do um when you when you kind of entered into that program what was the was there a goal or a a kind of career that you imagined for yourself that's those are all excellent questions none of which (laughs) straightforward answers um so interaction and moving image as is now called interaction design arts it's a course that still exists at london college of communication where i work and it is uh renowned for its very particular ethos of both pedagogy and approach to the subject which is Mm. deeply rooted in uh, play and experimentation. So what attracted me to that was that it it um, it was sort of a non-teleological approach to design and almost an artistic approach to design. Um, and why I moved over to that program was that it wasn't about getting really excellent at, at a particular skill set or a particular idea. It was sort of saying, what happens if we plug this thing into that thing? Does it make something interesting happen? Um, the titling of the interactive and moving image just happens to be that it was originally too much smaller courses who was, that were stuck together. And a big component mm-hmm. of it as well was thinking about narrative um, and narrative as a way of, like, like actually I was just describing, a narrative as a way of getting people into ideas. So whether that's through film itself, and we did a lot of moving image and animation work and things like that on that course and still do, or whether it's just understanding, for instance, the way that people come into a space and sort of and tell the story of their experience in the space. So the, the moving image aspect of it isn't so much about the media as this idea of thinking about experience as a narrative, I suppose. Um, but it's very different to, I think, how you would maybe think about interaction design elsewhere, where it's maybe more based on um, you know, apps or UX and things right, like that. Right. It's very much, I mean, I made things like a, a giant clock that captured a second forever. It was like the first <laughs> project that I made, you know, completely awesome. non-technological sort of stuff. Um, so super interesting program. And, and the thing it really gave me as well was was a reminder that design should be and can be fun. It should be mm-hmm. funny. It should be just about plugging things into other things and seeing what happens and having a laugh at the end of the day, mm-hmm. um, as well as taking the serious stuff seriously. Right. So a lot of the projects we did were things about like science communication. So we did stuff around like sexual health and things like that, you know, serious subjects, but approaching them with this idea of like narrative and play. And so you said you said you transferred into that. And so before that, that you were were you studying graphic design? Studying studying is a very um, strong word for what I was doing with graphic design. <laughs> okay, I was avoiding. I was playing World of Warcraft a lot. That's what I was doing. Okay, all right. It's interesting to me though because it sounds like this again. I don't keep. I apologize for coming back to this kind of artist and designer sort of. Uh, I, mean, I wish I'd never written it now. <laughs> line, but it sounds like this this crossing between both the art context and the design context was there from the beginning of this this education that that was kind of almost embedded in some ways in this interactive and moving image curriculum yes yeah for sure yeah and definitely the way that that i'd say actually this is true of i mean lcc is where i've been now you know as a student and now as a member of staff for, for it must be about 15 years at this point yeah it must be um you know has this dual mix of having a very experimental critical um 
you know, artistic approach to the world that, that involves poetry and play and things like that, while also being very industry focused, right? So it's an interesting balance when you look at whatever the course is, whether it's interaction or the graphic design courses I'm currently working with, you know, there's a balance between these two sides that many people think are opposing, but make for a really powerful designer to be able to navigate those two different um, forms of practice. Can you talk more about how you do that? We're jumping around a little bit, um, sure. you know, because we were just talking about your your time as a student, but now you're you're running the graphic design communication program there, yeah. and I'm. This is something I think about all the time. Is this this? I don't know the word. I keep saying balance, but balance isn't quite the right word um, between industry and experimentation or mm. or commercialism and criticality and i do think that that um that, that you do a great job of of that balance and I, I do think that the school is known for that can you talk about how you think about that and how how you kind of let those two live side by side Oh man, this, I mean, this is a very tricky thing because you can come at it from so many different angles. I think it, one of the problems we have is there is a, there is a conception from lots of different people and um, students, staff, the government in particular, that, that university is a place to become more gainfully employed. And mm-hmm, um, you gain skills necessary to make you more competitive in the job market. And thus anything that isn't explicitly towards that goal is therefore not going to help you get a job, basically. Um, but we know that if you look at the, the desires of employers across a range of disciplines, not just within design, and mo- many of our graduates go on to, to places that aren't in design, that they're looking for things that are more nebulous or, or, or more esoteric, maybe things like you know critical thinking, creativity, mm-hmm. collaboration, problem solving, all those skills that designers are really excellent at. You know, and it's not about being good at Photoshop. It's about being able to have a difficult right. confrontational conversation with a client and walk them through an idea in a confident way, which is a much more valuable skill mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. than being quite good at Photoshop. So it, it's articulating to everybody. And frankly, we need to do a much better job of it as a sector. But we need to do a much better job of explaining why you know, being very good at Photoshop might make you competitive on immediate graduation, but it's going to be useless yes. to you in 20 years time. Yes. It's yes. not going to be something that makes you a, a more, a more sort of interesting person to work with. And the other, the other side of it as well is this idea that, you know, the university should be a place for personal growth and fun and mm. making some silly mistakes and doing interesting stuff and not just doing another three years of incredibly expensive job training, um, right. which is, a misconception that lots and lots of people have. And it's one we haven't done a very good job of dispelling and, and creating a value for university, um, really. Is that the job of the design educators or of the design schools to kind of communicate that these other skills are also, <laughs> you know, valuable in some way? And the reason, I mean, let me let me kind of like preface this because I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day um, about... Uh, you know, like, for example, when I was in undergrad, I took three classes in Adobe Flash. I have never used Adobe Flash in my life <laughs> since that's, those that's, that's correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so I think about that with my students all the time. It's like, I, I'm not going to teach you software. You can learn mm. that stuff on YouTube. And, and the YouTube videos are probably going to teach it better than I'm going to teach it anyway. And it's going to change all the time. So we're not going to spend time doing that. You You figure it out. I know you know how to do it. Um, and also, I think it's a good skill for you to learn how to figure out this stuff on your own, because in 20 years, 
who knows what the technology is going to be and you'll know how to you'll know how to kind of figure it out yeah and i'm wondering if there's a switch this i've been kind of kicking around this theory lately that i want to throw at you that maybe instead of kind of responding to industry and this is a, a blanket statement i realize you know think hearing what what the industry wants students to learn oh we want motion designers we, yeah. we, uh, we're, we're doing apps now we want a lot of app designers and we're like okay let's add this to the curriculum let's okay we need to have you know uh react in the program now or whatever yeah what if the schools were saying this is what it means to be a designer or this is what it could mean to be a designer and then we just kind of like throw all those students into the world and let the industry follow you know what i mean well i mean the sciences largely do that you know so i don't so yes you're entirely right and i think it's actually a relatively recent i mean i obviously know the uk context a lot better and i think it's a relatively recent switch which is tied up in um the changing of fees fees of of not quite a us scale yet but they're still increasing all the time and obviously therefore it, it turns um, students into customers and right. they have a certain expectation of experience um, and also I mean one thing that's very interesting is increasingly for instance when I was still doing open days and stuff you're you're talking to parents as much as you are to students right. about what they because for them it's an enormous investment and yeah. as well so you're right and it should be the other way around and we often talk about um, at UAL we often say things about sort of um, not industry ready grad not getting graduates ready for industry but getting industry ready for graduates which is mm, I love that it's, to you, it's pithy, but there you go. It's a, yeah. it works. It makes the point, I suppose. Yeah. But that's, but that's yeah. the point is we, we should, we we could, we should have the other arrangement. And we should be the other way around. And universities should be respected as places where the future is sort of incubated. It, you know, because we have the opportunity to do that. But unfortunately, it is not. Uh, certainly, again, in the UK context, and I suspect in the US as well, it is not politically beneficial to the current government to do that because also, particularly art design universities, happen to be hotbeds of radical leftism, <laughs> and so need to be need to be curtailed. But obviously, I don't know if you've seen the news, but the government announced um, last week uh, they're cutting the arts education budget by fifty percent. Right? Oh no, I didn't know that. Which which is. It, for us, isn't going to be isn't going to be too bad because of the scale we're on. But for you know universities that are maybe offering a range of disciplines and have a small art or design department, it's going to be catastrophic. You know they're going to be mm. they're going to be completely hobbled by this, and it just is a is a damning indictment of sort of the way that both the cultural sector and higher education have currently been politicized. I'm not sure exactly how to ask this question, but I'm kind of curious about your own. I want to kind of like use what we were just talking about and kind of trace your own kind of evolution as a designer, <laughs> perhaps. And so you you were in this interactive and, and moving image. You you got an MA in design interaction yeah. um, shortly after that, I believe. Yeah, I took a year out in between where I worked in a bookshop, which was great. I'd recommend okay. that everybody do that. Just don't do design for a year and just check that you still really actually want to do it. Yeah, I I agree with that. Actually, I, I support that. Um, but then you know you also worked in in kind of uh, design studios. You were at Superflux mm-hmm. for a while. I saw I, I had a knob on the show a couple yeah. years ago. You're at Arup, uh, a couple other places. I'm I'm kind of, and it seemed like you were teaching alongside mm. of those. Were, is that true? Yeah, I actually started teaching during my master's degree. Um, okay, I was, I was invited back as a as a what we call an associate lecturer, sort of hourly paid lecturer. That time. Okay, I'm 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 curious if you can talk a little bit about that sort of that sort of evolution of you know, you're working in these studios, you're working mm-hmm. still in sort of critical, speculative kind of future design scenarios, but you know working with clients and you know in a kind of studio context, and your move into these more 
I don't know how, what you call them, informal collaborations, perhaps, or like kind of independent collaborations, <laughs> leaning more into research and and academia. Can you kind of just talk about about that kind of evolution a little bit? Yeah, sure. I, so yeah, I did. I I I went to um, the RCA Royal College of Art and did. did um, I've completely forgotten the name of the course. Design interactions. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that obviously has a bit of a reputation as the sort of um, the 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 place where speculative and critical design was kind of birthed and then brought out mm-hmm. into the world. Um, and studied there under Dun and Raby. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, and then I when I graduated, I I sort of didn't know what I wanted to do with it. It turned out that I was sort of into it, and I was actually sort of quite good at it as well, which was nice. It was sort of nice to realize that I had some ability to articulate sort of difficult not well to articulate some conversations about the future through designs and things like that um and i really didn't know so i was just trying out lots of different things and i was approached by arab which was was great and i worked with their foresight team um for about a year i think um and that was uh, one side of that whole sort of foresight speculative design world and then on the other side um working with superflux who obviously have at the time and, and still do have a, have a sort of mainstream practice of working with clients as well as more artistic side where they're doing exhibition work. Um, and I still, you know, collaborate with Superflux to this day. They live just down the road from me. So I see Nab and John all the time. Um, and, uh, and then finally also teaching and then also doing my own practices and stuff. I started at this point also being invited to do things like um, lectures and talks and uh, bits of writing. So I was really just fumbling around and just trying out different things to see what I sort of liked. Um, you know, the, 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 the corporate client facing work was very well paid and that was great, but I was just doing the same project over and over again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. And it was like, Oh, it's future of, toilets this week or whatever it is you know it's just it's just like oh, okay we can do this again um and since then it's been interesting because i think that whole field has evolved over the last 10 years where people are more interested in experimental methods and certainly mm-hmm. um a few years after that i started a company where we were very much committed to not just repeating dry old futures projects but to actually developing toolkits and methods that would be therefore like intellectually stimulating projects to do um but then yeah i, I sort of stuck with teaching and really enjoyed teaching um Again, found out I was quite good at it. Uh, at least that's what my students' results seem to show, which was nice to see. Um, and but the other major thing about it was just getting to have really interesting, frank conversations. And there's something, and it sort of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about before with the role of the university. There's something nice about having a, particularly where I work, a really safe space where you can have these kind of really difficult conversations about practice and, and, and research and the world and all those sorts of things, which you can't really have with clients. Um, because they, you know, even the best clients sort of already know what they want to get from you. They don't, they're not open to sort of learning and changing in the same way that students or my colleagues are. So, um, so yeah, I sort of ended up sticking more and more with teaching. I got obviously very into um, boosting my own ego through uh, doing guest lectures and, and deeply average design projects across the world. Um, and that was, and then, and then that sort of stuck. And then, and, and then I sort of discovered over time that, I, that some of that futures thinking, that ability to work with clients actually proved to be pretty um, useful currency in the context of an enormous organization like a university. And so started to take on more and more responsibility to the point where I'm now a, a program director of, of, a, of a subject that I studied for about nine months. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was just genuinely coming out of the, the MA. At that time, speculative design was still on the fringes of practice. It wasn't yet mainstreamed in the way it is today, where I think most 
and people in that space would know what you mean if you were to say speculative design to them. Um, mm -hmm. And so people really weren't sure how to treat it. Most of the work was sort of exhibition style, gallery facing stuff. There were, of course, companies like Superflux who were starting to do it um, with clients. But there really wasn't, you know, there's not a job for speculative designers. It's not a job you can have. Right. Right. So it was just trying out different places and, and sort of thinking about what I wanted to spend my time doing, really. I'm curious about this. I, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on these terms, speculative design and, or critical design. Oh, even. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I feel like, I, 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 I feel like we're going to be in agreement actually. Okay. Um, I mean, perhaps. Maybe Will you not. tell me what you think you mean by speculative design and I'll tell you whether I agree or not. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure how to define these anymore. That's that's part yeah. of my question is I feel like these have become empty terms in some some ways or it's like it, they've become an aesthetic in that's some fair. in some yeah. ways. It's like, hey, if your work looks like Meta Haven, it's critical <laughs> design, you know, or if or if, if, if you have speculative everything on your bookshelf, yeah. then, you, then you're a critical designer. You got the, you got the bona fides. Right. I, I think, you know, Cameron Tonkin Wise had an essay a couple years ago called Just Design that I think about yeah. all the time where he has this line in there where he's like, anytime you you put a prefix in front of design, you know, critical design, speculative design, design research, futures design, etc., you're yeah. saying that just design is not those things. And yeah, okay. I kind of agree with that, that, that putting these words is kind of separating them out, saying that they are other. And I'm interested in how all design is critical design or all design, mm -hmm. I think you could argue is speculative design, perhaps, yeah. especially in a graphic design context, when you're, you know, creating a brand for somebody, this is a very, you know, uh, reductive example, but the brand in many ways makes that company real. It, it, it gives them some sort of context, some sort of visual that then people can kind of hold on to. And that's speculative in, in many ways, it's kind of projecting into the future. And so yeah. I'm kind of curious how you can, if you have thoughts on, both, you know, your work, which I think both, you know, is working with clients, but also these kind of self self generated or self initiated or, or, you know, funded projects, how people who are maybe not working in those contexts, but maybe are working in a more traditional design uh, context, how they can think about their work as critical or speculative or mm -hmm. future or, or research. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, sort of. I mean, I would fully, agree, I fully agree with with almost everything. Actually, I think you, you, you've, we, we do agree on the sentiment of what those things are, which is great. Um, I am always reminded of um, my PhD supervisor and um, uh, a, a design educator at Goldsmiths, Matt Ward. But, you know, he wrote, I, I think, a few years ago, around the same time as, as Cameron Tonkin was probably that all design is based in the future, right? Yeah, so right. Whether you're designing a chair or or a, or a brand or whatever it is, you're all as you exactly as you said, you're making certain assumptions about the future and, and the context in which that thing will exist. Um, and if you're like designing a chair, most of those assumptions are probably pretty safe, right? You know, mm -hmm. gravity is not going to change, um, <laughs> right. so you, right. you can be pretty sure of how people's bodies are going to work for. The time of your design and um, but then the critical thing is where it's interesting and i think the mistake that's made is in lumping the speculative and critical together very often because you can do both but for instance you know i will whenever i talk about speculative design microsoft do every two years do a speculative design where they are really they're sort of drawing this kind of very rich and glitzy image of how they imagine the future of their products but it's not critical they're not right, right. They're, not, they're not trying to challenge their assumptions or your assumptions they're just trying to affirm the worldview they already have and convince you of 
that that's going to be true. And you could say the same for all advertising broadly. You could say that it's selling you a speculation um, that they can't prove is true at the point of sale. So that that's a different thing. And so I, so to me, whenever I whenever I talk about speculative design, it is a an approach to using the vocabulary of design to tell people a story. And you can tell them a story because you want to sell them a product, or you can tell them a story because you want to challenge an assumption they or you have. And that, then then it is critical. But then equally, you can do critical design practice that isn't based in the future, right? You can do things right. like, um, you know, Tom, Tom Thwaites' toaster project comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that's using something that's right now and actually almost reverse engineering it. Carl DeSalvo called it um, tracers, right, in his paper about... Um, design and the construction of publics. He said that, that yeah, it's yeah. not speculating into the future, it's unpicking the present. It's sort of forensically examining it to, to have a critical discourse about how things are made in the present. Um, and um, Matt Malpas as well has written a huge amount of it about this in, in his, his book, Critical Design in Context, right? Where he, he really separates out speculation from, from critical practice. So I think they're different things and they have a significant overlap in the middle, which is the, the sort of Dun and Raby argument that because the future is undetermined, it is a very easy way to get people into a critical discourse because you're not challenging something they already hold and know and experience. You're, you're, you're doing something that is still flexible and, and changeable. And so you can have an easier conversation with them about their assumptions right. in the future than you can in the present because people don't like being told they're wrong, right? right? So, you know, going up to someone and saying the products you use are, are really terrible will just be like, oh, but it's okay because I, you know, I pay off, um, you know, I, I contribute to the WWF or something that offsets the guilt of that. Whereas if you say to people, what about if we had completely sustainable consumer products in the future? They'd be like, oh yeah, that's interesting. How would we get there? Let's have that conversation. In your own work, how do you think about audience and kind of distribution or kind of getting getting your projects to that audience? And I'm going back to that, that kind of earlier comment you made with your students about... Um, the kind of approaches of of art and design and how design is, is is very much about thinking about audience and i think so much of these critical or speculative projects um and again i'm sorry to, to lump them together again but but in here there, there is this kind of weird overlap where often these just kind of get seen by the same people or they yeah. go into the gallery and they don't actually kind of fully engage with the real world yeah. maybe and i'm curious how you think about that and how you think about kind of working on these projects and then making sure that they're getting to the audience that they are intended for <laughs> well that there, there, there you you run into the uh, tricky phrase of impact right which is what we, we're supposed to be measuring and assessing as, as good academics. oh don't don't get me started on the word <laughs> impact <laughs> which is super tricky right because if you're designing a chair, again, to use like a really simple metaphor, you can measure the impact by how many chairs you've sold. Like it's quite a straightforward metric that you can use to assess whether you've been successful or how much profit you've made, for instance, on your chair. How do you assess the impact of uh, an interesting dialogue? Like how do you, how do you assess right. that? So obviously there are, there are a couple of routes here which where I see it used effectively. So, um, you know, one is in academic practice. So you can publish it, you can write papers, you can get citations and things like that. And, and obviously a lot of that stuff then does things like bleed through into curriculum so that it starts to go into the design vocabulary of people. And I think certainly at, at my university now, there isn't a course untouched by the speculative and critical design discourse mm. in design in some way from service designers to interaction designers to industrial designers. They're all, they, they will be introduced to that idea at some point. It's now part of the vocabulary of design and part of the toolkit of a designer. So that's one way and that's because of academic um, practice. But then the other is where we start to get into 
interesting projects around like co-design and right. sort of more service oriented, I say service design in the loosest possible way. I, I sort of mean participatory and co-design projects, particularly a lot of the ones that I know that colleagues have worked on and I worked on that are maybe with um, social organizations or policy groups where the speculative design is used to shift a conversation and, and help people think about the decisions they're making today and how they'll impact the future for their organization. And then you can definitely, again, start to see meaningful impact because you can change um, the nature of the conversation and perhaps lead to organizational change. So those are the two ways. And the gallery work, I think you're right. I think the gallery stuff and the stuff that goes on the blogs and wins Core 77 awards and stuff like that, <laughs> which which I'm guilty of awarding because I was on the jury, um, are... <laughs> you know, are there for other designers, right? They're there as a, as, a, as a design for other designers. But also, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think mm -hmm. having a canon of work that we can look to and sort of say, um, oh, that person did something particularly interesting in the way they developed the research for this particular speculation is a useful thing to have. I don't think there's a problem with that. Right. Um, but I think we, we can all probably acknowledge that, you know, putting a, a sort of really interesting film about the future of mushrooms in a gallery is not going to change the world. Yeah. <laughs> right. But that doesn't mean that there's no value, which I think, no. I, I think that's a good, um, a good distinction to make that I, I hope I wasn't kind of making it sound like. Yeah, and also, all, I mean, it's also, it. it's also worth underlining that certainly the practitioners I know who are working around speculative design, they're doing these things simultaneously, right? So right. Super, Superflux again, are a great example. Yeah. I mentioned that earlier, you know, they have, they're, they're artistic, and Ab might not be happy with the word artistic, but let's say artistic arm where, you know, they're doing exhibition work and that stuff gets a lot of attention and it's really interesting. So stuff that, that goes into galleries or travels or tours and that work that they practice and develop and the, the ideas they work through and doing that as a form of research and development, then go into client facing work, right. And becomes mm -hmm. part of mm -hmm. the, the way that they can to then work with clients on sort of much more grounded projects. Right. I want to go back to something you said like very early in this conversation about you being a B plus designer, <laughs> um, which I've heard you say, I, I, I read an interview that you had done a couple years ago and you kind of mentioned that also. And I've often joked in myself, I'm like, I'm an okay designer. I'm an okay writer, yeah. uh, but I'm good at like bringing people together. I'm good at teaching, which, you know, you, you also said you're, you, yeah. you think you're, and I'm kind of curious about, about that and kind of how you, uh, I'm, this is a leading question because for mm. me, this was a hard kind of realization to make as somebody who yeah. was interested in design f since I was a teenager, wanted to be a designer, studied design. Uh, this, did, is did, this is tragic because it sounds like you did it all for the right reasons as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a, it's, I'm fine. I'm not complaining. I'm not, yeah. this is, this is not a sad story, but then kind of, you know, yeah graduating and working as a designer and then being like, wait a minute, yeah. A, this is not what I thought it was. And B, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> uh, but then kind of realizing that my place in this field was in other contexts, was in mm. teaching, was in this podcast, was in writing, was in, you know, kind of organizing things. But that was kind of like a hard thing to kind of like get over in mm. myself of like, oh, actually, I can still be involved in this world that I really like, but in this kind of other context. And I talk about this with my students all the time. It's like, you know, just because you like planes doesn't mean you have to be a pilot. There's, yeah, yeah. there's all other, you know, areas in this. And I'm kind of curious how you, you know, if you could just kind of like talk about that a little bit about kind of studying design, working as a designer, but then realizing, <laughs> you know what, I'm actually like a really good administrator. 
Yeah, it's tragic, isn't it? I was joking yesterday that I spent a lot of money investing in my design education to be really good at Microsoft Office. <laughs> like, that's where I am now. Um, how did I find that? Well, I, I mean, the way you describe it is pretty much bang on the, the sort of stuff I went through. I mean, I don't think, I mean, one of the, so one of the things about being a student on a course, which again, is a great thing, is you're in quite a small pool relative, right, to the world. And so you can be, you can be pretty successful in that small pool and then suddenly go out into the world and be like, oh, no, <laughs> they're really good and I'm not. Um, and that's, that's yeah, and that, I don't think it was, I don't think I went through any particular tragic thing. I sort of always was like, so, I mean, this sounds quite um, cheesy, but it is true. The design part was a secondary vehicle for getting to meet interesting people and do interesting things. Right. It wasn't, you know, I, I, it sounds like I had a very different background to you. I was just always... Oh, it, well, not very different, but I mean, my motivations for doing design were because, oh, look, the people doing the interesting music are all going to design school. Right. So I'm going to go there because I want to keep right. hanging out with the cool people. Right. Um, and it, even in my career today, it's like I want to go to these conferences and events and stuff, not because I want, I'm deeply interested in like publishing a paper, but I want to meet this person who I've been knowing for ages and I'm really right. interested right. to hear what they have to say. So the design was just a vehicle for doing that, really, and just generally, generally, genuinely meeting people and having interesting experiences and you know one of the great privileges i suppose former great privileges now really of, of, of design and academia is, the, is you get to travel a lot you get to meet some interesting people you've got yeah. quite a lot of levity in what you can do it's not like accounting where there's basically one thing you can do you're either accounting or not accounting right you know in, right. in design you might go you know what? i'm gonna make a film this week i'm gonna give that a go you know and, and that's kind of nice um yeah yeah so uh, yeah it, it was fine but then also yeah i mean my, my full bio is like i can't remember what it is like B plus designer, C minus pop culturist, A plus administrator. You know, it's like, I'm okay yeah. at design. I'm really out of touch with pop culture, but I'm very, very good at making money appear. And, and... I, I, I think, I actually think you're right. And I, I, I uh, and kind of talking about the, the drive in design, because that actually was the same for mm, me. Okay. It, it was, I realized later that it wasn't the design itself, but it was the ideas behind the design that I yeah. was interested in. I, I like do not care about working with clients. And when I realized that that was like a big part of it, I was like, okay, maybe this isn't for me. But these ideas, these questions, these people, you know, that's the kind of, you know, that's the interesting part. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that, your your you being an what was it a minus administrator uh, a plus thank you a plus um <laughs> can you talk about that i'm so interested in i don't know if anyone else is probably turn off the show every oh, time cool. i bring this up we're going I'm, to a new season of scratching the surface now where it's just going to be bureaucrats yes i'm so interested in the intersection of like creative practice and administration yeah uh, i find this such an interesting topic Same. and i don't know if anyone else does but i've been asking a lot of people about it on the oh, show man. so we'll see if if listeners start dropping off can you talk about that in your own work and and perhaps maybe how your background in art and design influences how you think about kind of working as an administrator i yeah and i'm i'm deeply fascinated by it i'm you know deep into organizational theory you know mm -hmm. from, from yeah, da too. david graber on downwards you know yeah. into like the way that organizations work to, to, so to me the university is a is a political instrument right mm -hmm. and it is mm -hmm. You know, that conversation we had earlier about, you know, that the, the university should be leading the conversation about the future, not just trying to churn out graduates for Google or whatever it is that's employing at the moment, um, is serious. And that is a political project that is about shifting, um, sh moving power around inside of huge institutions in order to change the dynamics of the next generation of people. It, again, it's a 
corny as hell thing. But I, you know, I think that a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet is such a powerful tool for doing that. Yeah. You know, f- to be able to make what can be really sometimes very intimidating decisions about like the next five years of a course and how it's funded and structured and what its priorities are and things like that will have a significant impact or I hope has an impact on at least a small section of a society at some point um, by the way it's sort of activated. And that's all done through Excel and through paperwork and through acronyms right. and things like that. And obviously <laughs> this is this is deeply where David Graeber writes about where power is invested in you know organizations mm-hmm. and things like that. And it's completely fascinating to me. And it is a design project. It is about, I love, there's, um, I, I can't remember if you've had him on. Do you know Benedict Singleton? I do not. No, I don't know who that is. He, he, uh, Should I have him on the show? He's an interesting guy. He's a really interesting dude. Um, he runs a, a service design organization called Rival Strategy. But he wrote his PhD about Willem Fluss's, um interpretation of design as trap making. Mm. So, so designers... You know, I'm paraphrasing the argument here, but that a designer doesn't make anything fundamentally new. They just understand the tendencies and affordances of things that already exist and reorient right. them towards a new outcome, right. which is is trap making. And that's the same with bureaucracy. You're taking the various tendencies of the organization to do certain things and their priorities and all these different departments that have different priorities and strategies. And you're just pointing them in the direction that is most favorable to you, which is a mm. design project. To me. Mm-hmm. That is just a design project with spreadsheets and and you know embedded PDFs and things like that. <laughs> All the endless nonsense that bureaucracy produces. So I so I, I you know I do get perversely really into it and quite excited by the prospects of it. And I know that especially for for many colleagues who have a very different temperament, it's an incredibly frustrating um, thing that can feel like it's against creative practice in many ways. And actually. Um, it's just a way of finding, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's like finding the, the sort of the slipstream that works to, to, mm-hmm. benefit, to your benefit, which like I say is a design project. I think of it as a design project. I, yeah, I think that's so well said. I, uh, I have a couple sort of smaller, quicker questions to wrap up, um, kind of a little bit specific about just some projects. You've done a lot of work around renders. Yeah, um, and, and, let's talk about rendering for now. And rendering, and I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in this kind of uh, kind of spread of of mockups in graphic <laughs> design. You know, everybody's mocking everything. Uh, everything's everybody's ma- mocking up their design work on the same mockups. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so you can go to like the biggest design studio to my students, and they're all using the same template yeah. of a tote bag to show their new brand. <laughs> um, and and I'm kind of curious. Do you think all design is just synthetic now? Wow, that's a big question, isn't it? Is all design synthetic? Was it ever not synthetic? That's uh, that's a good point. <laughs> um, I certainly, I mean, you know, the reason I'm into computer graphics broadly is some of what you just described, which is this, there is a, an aesthetic of standardization that comes with mm-hmm. software. Yeah. So actually, it's sort of similar to Excel. Once something is so mm-hmm. standardized and stabilized in culture, and stabilized is the word that like sociologists use to talk about technologies becoming kind of embedded in our lives in a way that's completely coherent and we no longer question um it starts to reshape that culture and so we imagine you know in the same way that institutions now imagine the world through excel spreadsheets the standardization of things like the adobe suite um and these mock-up platforms and things you're describing have led to a a a prefiguration of an aesthetic that is very hard to get around and and whenever i um, used to interview sort of see applicant portfolios. I, you know, there were very often 
I'd get, you know, a few hundred applicant portfolios. I'm like, I can't honestly tell the difference. <laughs> they're all using exactly the same software yeah. that they're plugging their graphic into. Yeah. And and it is and it is it is the peril of automation is that by making something easier, you also standardize that thing. It has to be done the same way in order to be automated to be able to be done easier. And we're definitely seeing that in design. Um, and I've noticed it actively over the last five, six years. I don't think I'm just looking for it. I think that 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 the tools that I certainly was educated on in design were very still much, um, very much still sort of specialist tools. They required a specialist mm -hmm. expertise mm -hmm. to use, right. which meant that necessarily they were much more malleable and that the things that came out of them were much more varied. But now that everything's templated and standardized and presets, particularly again in things like the Adobe suite, you know, you don't have to challenge those. It's already ready to go for you, you know? Right. So you end up with a very homogenous aesthetic as a result, and you particularly see it in computer graphics, but you also see it across all of visual culture. In the sort of opposite direction, but still thinking about technology, I'm interested in your, I'm curious to hear you talk more about your interest in magic and the cult <laughs> and, and spirituality. You have, you have this kind of curatorial practice, haunted machines. Yeah. Um, Global super brand haunted machines. <laughs> right. That's how, how you, that's how you yeah. describe it. Um, can you talk about where that, where that kind of interests came from and where that research is going um and yeah that's another i mean this is all these kind of you know talking about just being curious about stuff you pick up these ideas and then other people also find them interesting they sort of spiral out of control and so haunted machines was um uh a lot of the people in in the sort of london design community around sort of 2013 14 all and sort of design and tech community i suppose with the emergence of what was then called the internet of things i don't know if that's sort mm. of thing mm -hmm. anymore there was this weird occult narrative that seemed to accompany it and it was seemed to be everywhere. And there was a struggle of the designers to find a, a, a sort of rhetoric, rhetorical framework to explain to people why they should have smart gizmos and gadgets. And very often it fell on, um, oh, it, it somehow enhances your power. It gives you some sort of magical ability. It um, is a friend. They, they drew a personification and all these sort of, um, all these metaphors that were very evocative right you know, it, around half the time directly evocative and the rest of the time sort of implicitly of magic and the occult and familiars and animism and personification, all these things. So basically, you know, I just started a series of Twitter conversations about why that was. And, you know, lots of other people were noticing it as well. Um, and then that sort of just became a series of events and projects and stuff, which sort of culminated in a um, year-long festival in the Netherlands in 2017 that Natalie Kane and I did. Natalie Kane's my collaborator on Haunted Machines. Um, and that also, that kind of wrapped up actually, because we didn't, it's not really, it was, it was sort of about going, this is weird. Let's get 200 people who also think this is weird together to talk about it and have a couple of beers. And we managed to do that and the Dutch government paid for it. So it was great. It's all done. Um, <laughs> and magic. And magic. It's uh, all done. But then, but now I think the interesting thing has been um, since then, um, the, the, use of a similar narrative that's really emerged around artificial intelligence and one that yeah. artists and designers are also using to tackle the sort of the thorny issue of how do you talk to people about something that's so um you know inhuman not inhuman in like a monstrous way but non-human it's so non-human and so incomprehensible to us as an idea you know you can understand its application for instance but you can't understand what what actually is it like what is it to have cognitive computation and right. so people are, see this a lot of, with, with both artists, but also with, um, you know, developers, they, they're, they're returning to this magical discourse and this idea of it being like superpower. What's next for you or what's kind of top, what, what subjects are you thinking about now or, or what's kind of consuming 
Well, if your if, interest, if my PhD supervisor is listening, I'm definitely concentrating on my PhD for the foreseeable <laughs> future and nothing else at all. I mean, the rendering stuff is very much what I'm, I'm into at the moment. And, and um, that is also partly the subject of my PhD, which is about sort of computational aesthetics, I suppose. Mm. Oh, interesting. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just interested in, and it's so fascinating. So I was doing tutorial, I was doing teaching this morning um, with about 40 students, I'd say, all graphic designers, undergraduate graphic designers, all, almost all of them, I'd say at least 95% of them using either Cinema 4D or Blender to do their work. Right. And I was talking to the tutor I was teaching with, I was going, this is so strange that this is now such yeah. a part of like design culture. It's no longer a specialist thing. Yeah. And it goes back to that normalization of a certain aesthetic. And I think in rendering and 3D rendering, and I attach this to both things like cinema as well as video games, there is an enormous imaginative potential. I think the ability to do incredibly new um, things with visual culture that really introduce new ideas and new experiences is phenomenal and that's super exciting and there's so many people doing that work already um, the tragic side of it of course is people then just turning into NFTs and making a load of money um, but, then the, but then the other side of this is also this fact that we are surrounded by a very rich uh, highly rendered sparkly version of the future that, that limits the ability to imagine alternatives so thinking about things like architectural renderings or visions of the future city or product visions you know the the, the benefit of a low fidelity visual is it engages the imagination a lot more and it encourages the person looking at it whether it's a render of the future city or a design for a product to have to fill in the blanks whereas mm -hmm. overwhelming people with this um aesthetic of kind of you know perfect glass perfect steel perfect concrete you know, right. the perfect experience, everything super seamless, limits the ability to question those visions. I, yeah, I love that. That's a, it's a nice, that's actually like a nice summary of so much of what we, what we talked about today. Mm -hmm. So I'll end with the last question that I use uh, to end all of these. What are you reading right now? <laughs> I'm actually reading Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower at the moment, nice. um, which I've just never read. And I, I know that that's a massive oversight on my part. And I'm I haven't either. And I, I have it on my Kindle ready to read because everybody's reading it right now. It and I feel bad. So dark. I mean, if you, I mean, I read Handmaid's Tale and watched the series and that was pretty heavy, but this yeah. is, yeah. it's a bleak old, outlook especially at the moment in the current context it's just not it's uncomfortable reading in some ways i should all right i, I guess i need to to finally start it too yeah it's good tobias this was great i i really enjoyed talking to you about all of these things i'm a fan of your work thanks for being on the show thank you for inviting me thanks jared super nice this episode was recorded on may 13th 2021 our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can support the show on patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcast and at scratching the surface.fm thanks for listening